the wrong password. There it is. <laughs> it is an awesome privilege and honor to be here with you today. Uh, I do want to give honor to your pastor and, and uh, Sister Parker. Uh, they are such great men and women of God. Uh, what an awesome couple that has been pastoring this church. Uh, again, I've, I've worked with them uh, on and off throughout the years, and uh, what a blessing that has been. Uh, Brother DeMuth, thank you for, for preaching this morning. That was amazing, and it is a confirmation to me that I'm on the right track, and I like that. <laughs> so that'll be good. Uh, what weird times, huh? These are, I mean, it's almost cliche now to say uh, what 2020 has been. <clears throat> it's just a hot mess is what it's been. <laughs> but uh, it's also true that uh, somewhere, somehow, God is working his will in all of this. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to see on this side of the clouds what God is doing uh, above the clouds but I am trusting and I believe with all of my heart that through this, God is going to do something miraculous. And he's going to use you to do it. He's going to use you. Not you as a congregation, not you as the church universal, you as an individual. He has a plan for you. He created you for a very specific reason. And he wants to use you in that capacity. In fact, this world needs you to be used in that capacity. Amen. What Brother DeMuth uh, preached about this morning was, uh, <laughs> it was really good. Uh, I suppose anything from the Bible is good, but, uh, but I mean, it was really good. Uh, the, the message that God has given me is, uh, I struggled with it, and the reason for that is that, you know, it's, I don't know if this would be classified as, as a message that uh, typically a visiting minister would, would preach to a congregation. And so I do want to uh, qualify this message by saying that uh, whatever Pastor Parker preaches and teaches is right, and I'm wrong. Okay, period. That's, uh, that's the way it's got to be, and that's the way it is. Uh, he's the pastor, and uh, what he preaches and teaches supersedes anything that I say here today. So, having said that, uh, if you will stand with me just for a moment. for uh, We're going to read in Ezekiel chapter 3, starting with verse 17. We'll go to, to verse 21. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 3. Verses 17 through 21. The Bible says this, and I haven't given any scriptures uh, to, oh, doesn't matter though. You are good. <laughs> okay. Okay, so uh, Ezekiel chapter 3, starting with verse 17. Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, 
nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Now, this is kind of hard. This is some, some hard verses to, to choke down here. Verse 19, Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die because thou hast not given him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered. But his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, and he doth not sin, he shall surely live, because he is warned. Also thou hast delivered thy soul. And we're going to speak on, uh, hopefully not too long this morning, on this topic, the dangerous Christian. The dangerous Christian. And if you would pray with me one last time, uh, I need God's help, and we need God's help this morning. Uh, so let's bind together as one body and entreat the Lord our God to help us to uh, set us on the right path if we're not there already. And God has a plan for you as an individual. He has a plan for this church. And uh, these are the end times. And if we're not serious about this, we need to get serious about it uh, because the enemy most certainly is serious. And, uh, well, we'll talk more. But let's pray right now and ask God to help us. Lord Jesus, you're an awesome God. You're a mighty king, and I entreat you this morning that you would help your humble servant, help him to deliver the word of God according to your plan, according to the needs of this congregation. And I pray, God, above all else, that your perfect will would be accomplished in each heart and in each life. Minister unto your people. Undergird them with strength. Encourage them in the Lord their God today. And let your name be glorified in our midst here this morning. These things we ask here in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You can be seated. <clears throat> okay, uh, before we get started, uh, I'm going to lay some groundwork uh, so that <clears throat> nothing I say is misunderstood. Because it's uh, sometimes I'm misunderstood. And I don't like it, and the people get upset. So, uh we're going to lay some groundwork here, a few points, just so we're on the same page, and then we'll get right on into it. Okay, the first point, everybody is lost without God. Now, we understand that, okay? Everyone in this room understands that. We cannot have salvation without the finished work of Jesus Christ at Calvary. We get that. However, sometimes we look at certain people and we start thinking, they're pretty good people. You know, we qualify them. And we say, uh, this, you know, <laughs> I got really good friends uh, that are not in church. They're really good people. They're really moral people. And if I'm not careful, I can start thinking, you know, they, they're going to be okay. They don't really need God. I mean, their life is together. They got good jobs. They're on their way up. Good relationship with their spouse. Kids are happy. Got a nice home. Everything's going great for them. Why would they need God? Now, 
before I came into church, the guy that finally did bring me into church told me he thought the very same thing of me. And <laughs> I have no idea why he thought that. I was not together at all. <clears throat> I guess I appeared that way. But uh, uh, no, I was looking for God. But he thought everything's going good for him. I'm not going to really talk to him about God. I'll talk to someone else. And he did talk to someone else, but I overheard it, and I jumped in. So I, I still got it. But, uh, <clears throat> amen. I'm going to get mine. <laughs> get my salvation. Um, but that is not true, folks. I don't care how well put together they are. I don't care how moral they are. And we're going to talk in... We're going to talk here for a little while on how that's simply not true. <clears throat> Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 10. The Apostle Paul is talking to us about uh, human nature, kind of wrapped up in a nutshell. And he starts off in verse 10 by saying this, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now this isn't talking about a rank sinner, folks. This is talking about you and me before God. Before we came to the Lord, this is talking about every single human being that has ever lived or died. This describes us to a T. There is none good. Why do bad things happen to good people? The answer is, according to Scripture... There are no good people. There are no good people, not without God. Even Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 18, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one. That is God. No one else is good. Only God is good. Now, there are nice people. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But there are no good people. One thing we need to understand this morning before we, we get into the message proper is how far down the depths of human depravity go. And this is hard for me. And it's going to be hard to hear. Reciting some of the atrocities that human beings have committed to other human beings in our history. But if we are going to be a dangerous Christian, and I'll define that here eventually. We need to understand this. We need to understand what human nature really is. And that human nature is still in us. We have another nature, thank God, that helps us overcome that old nature. And we are to crucify that old nature. But if we're not careful, if we're not vigilant, that old nature will rise up. This concept of human depravity is something most Christians pay lip service to, but we don't really believe it in our heart of hearts. 
We want to believe the good in people. We want to believe that people are basically good people. People are not basically good people. People are depraved. Human beings are utterly corrupt. And I don't say that lightly. I'm saying that about me too. My old nature is utterly corrupt. Before I came to God, I hated him. I hated his precepts. Now, if you asked me, I wouldn't have said that at all. I was a Lutheran. I went to church. I was born and raised as a Lutheran. Everything, Sunday school, confirmation, the whole nine yards. I didn't hate God. I didn't live for God. I didn't serve God. I didn't do what his word says. But I went to church. I was quiet. I love God. No, I didn't. My actions said something else. I hated him. If he told me to do something I didn't want to do, there's no way I'd have done it. Because I was in rebellion. Human beings are born that way. You don't, you have to teach a little child to share, but you don't have to teach him to lie or to be greedy. Why is that? Well, because he's basically a good little child, right? Not at all. That's built into us. Narcissism, uh, self-love, self-absorption, that's built into us at birth. The work, the finished work of Jesus at Calvary, and once we understand the depths of human depravity, we understand what a miracle salvation really is. What a miracle this is that we have received. That God can overcome all of this in my life and turn that into something good is nothing short of a miracle. Now, these examples certainly aren't exhaustive, unfortunately, but uh, they will exemplify to us what we're talking about today. That human beings without God are desperately and utterly evil. In Germany, during World War II, they killed six million Jews and an equal amount of Poles, Russians, Gypsies, the handicapped, etc. Battalions of police scoured the countryside, rounding up people to imprison, torture, and kill. Thousands upon thousands were stripped naked and shoved in ditches and killed. Newcomers would be forced to lie on top of the dead bodies before being killed, and on and on it went. These are human beings. Sweltering rail cars, families separated into gas chambers. Auschwitz ovens could cremate 4,765 people in one day. In 1994, they had identified 10,005 camps, ghettos, and brothels positively. The major camps each had hundreds of satellite camps. The people working for these satellites worked for companies like these. Daimler-Benz, BMW, Volkswagen, the Bear Corporation, the ones that sell aspirin. They sold the camps the Zyklon B gas that was used in the gas chambers. Administrators, typists, rail workers, policemen, truck drivers, and factory workers all worked at these camps. They and their families all knew what was going on, but they came to work just the same. Are these things inhuman? 
Is it inhuman to want to kill all the Jews in the world? Is it inhuman to want to kill another human being, to inflict such pain and, and torture on somebody else? Unfortunately, no, that's the very definition of what it means to be human. That is the definition of humanity. In the Soviet Union, from 1917 to 1989, between 20 and 26 million people were killed or died in camps. In the Ukraine, between 1932 and 33, they sealed off the borders of the Ukraine and sent in soldiers with dogs to remove every bit of food. Five to seven million people starved to death during this time. One soldier later reported that the worst part of this was watching the children starve to death. Their thin limbs and their bloated bellies were not the worst part. It was their eyes. They were utterly expressionless. And no longer human. Is this inhuman? Is this something monsters do? Something out of a nightmare? No. This is someone's husband that went into these camps and did this. This is someone's son. In 1937, Japan invaded Nanking, China. What they did there is called the Rape of Nanking. 300,000 people were tortured, raped, or killed there. Chinese men were used for bayonet practice, for stabbing, or for beheading contests. Up to 80,000 Chinese women were raped. Afterwards, some of them were disemboweled, Body parts were mutilated. They nailed them alive to walls. Not going to go on with that. Is that inhuman? Is it inhuman to mutilate somebody else while they're still living, listening to their screams and enjoying it? No. That is exactly human. Not to mention the torture in South Africa under apartheid, what's called the disappeared in Argentina, the horrors that went on in the Sudan. Romania killed about 300,000 Jews on their own without Germany's help. Dismemberments in Liberia, Mexico killing its indigenous people, horrors of all kinds in Uganda. But that's overseas, right? That doesn't happen in the United States. But since 1973, over 55 million babies have been suctioned, scraped, or scalded to death. That's genocide. That's mass murder. And who keeps that legal? Monsters? Inhuman? Your neighbors. Maybe your family members. Coworkers. They keep that legal. That's done every day in the United States. Everyone who researches genocide, can you imagine having that job? I research genocide. And every survivor of genocide who has been interviewed, every one of them agree 100%. Without, without fail, that it's the average member of a population that commits these genocides. It's not some creepy, inhuman monster. It's a husband, it's a wife, it's a child. Just an average guy, average girl. Goes home, 
loves their family, loves their children, kisses their spouse, next morning wakes up, goes to work, and kills people. The Auschwitz survivor, L.A. Wazel, said, quote, Deep down, man is not only an executioner, not only a victim, not only a spectator, he is all three at once, unquote. Adolf Eichmann, the administrator of Auschwitz, was captured and tried in Jerusalem for war crimes. Hannah Arndt chronicled the trial and said of Eichmann, The main trouble with Eichmann is that there are so many like him, neither perverted nor sadistic, that they were and still are terribly and terrifyingly normal. The hard truth that we need to understand this morning for us to be truly used of God is that that is in every one of us. Given the right circumstances and the right environment, every one of us are capable of those things and worse. And that's a hard truth to realize. That's a hard truth to choke down. That I am capable of something like that. But we need to understand that. Without God, without his salvation, we are utterly, desperately, hopelessly lost. We need Jesus. Now, one might argue, I know, I know non-Christians, I know people who aren't saved, and they're really good people. They're really nice. You know, they pay their taxes, they, they give to all the charities, uh, what about them? They, that, there's a contradiction here, right? <clears throat> well, uh, let's start by reading Matthew chapter 5, 27 and 28. This is part of the Beatitudes. I love the Beatitudes. I love the Sermon on the Mount. This isn't part of the Beatitudes, I'm sorry. Part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking here, and he's trying to explain kind of the, the transition between the old law, the dispensation of law, and the dispensation of grace that's about to come. And he says this, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And he gives a few more examples like this. Now question. What would prevent a non-Christian couple from committing adultery? The law? God's law? No, they don't believe in God. But yet they stay married sometimes. What prevents people from doing these things is the consequences. They want to commit adultery. It's in their heart. They see someone and they're wanting to, but they don't. Not because it's not the right thing to do, but because it might result in a messy divorce. I don't know if there's any disease there. This could cost me something. Society would frown on this. It's not because he's a good person. It's because he doesn't want the consequences. 
Why do gangbangers stop at a red light? That makes no sense. They're lawless. They do whatever they want, but they're going to stop at a red light. It's not because the police are going to get them. They got a they got a whole rap sheet behind them that they need to worry about. They don't want to get hit by an oncoming semi. They don't want the consequences, the potential consequences. And so, yes, there are people who are nice. Their actions. But if we could look into their hearts, like Jesus did, when you look on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart already. If we could see that, we would see that there are no good people. There are no good people, not in here. They'll act good, but they are not good. Not without God. The threat of punishment is what keeps people nice. But what if that threat were removed? What if we remove the threat? Then what happens? Well, (laughs) fortunately or unfortunately... We've seen it, right? We've seen what happens. This defund the police movement. Now, you're for or against, I don't know, and I don't care at this point. But it proves it proves the example here. You take the threat of punishment away. Now we're not so nice anymore. If the president were to come down and say for one week, we're not going to enforce any laws. No one is going to enforce anything. Do what you want. What are all those nice people going to do now? What are all those basically good people going to do then? Yeah. You know what would happen. That would be chaos. That would be anarchy. So we need to understand that. There are no good people. Not without God. The second point, we are morally free agents. Okay, God has created us with free moral agency. That means we have a choice. No other being, no other thing in all of creation has the power except us to tell God no. Nobody else can do that, but we can. I don't recommend it, but we have that option. We can tell God no. I don't want you. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to live my life the way I want. We can do that. And he's going to honor that. You can't give someone free moral agency and then take it back when they use it incorrectly. God gave us free moral agency. And he he lets us keep it. Even when we abuse it. Now because of this, God has designed a universe that our choices matter. They have consequences in the real world, good or bad. If I decide to reject God and go off and do drugs, easy example, I want to suffer the negative consequences of that. If I decide to serve God and do what he tells me to do, I'm going to receive the positive consequences of that. Now, a good example of this is uh, several years ago now, Hurricane Katrina, 
not my wife, came and hit New Orleans. New Orleans. I don't know how you pronounce that anymore. <clears throat> and everybody was, <laughs> there were kind of two sides, you know, it's God's judgment on New Orleans and on Bourbon Street and and other people were saying, you know, how could you say that? How could you be so cruel? And and there was this big uproar, you know. Uh, but how could God do this to us? How could God let the storm wipe out the whole city? Yeah, well, I mean, here's some things to consider, though. We built a city below sea level, okay? The walls that were keeping the water out were only rated for a Cat 3 storm when Cat 4 and 5 storms were not uncommon. So, is it really God's fault? He gave you a choice. You could have built that somewhere else. You could have built it better. But you didn't. You made your choice, and now we have to live with it. Unfortunately, a lot of other people had to live with those poor choices. Proverbs 19.3 says, The foolishness of man perverteth his way, and his heart fretteth against the Lord. In the ESV, it's translated this way, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. It's your own fault, but you're going to blame God for it. You made the poor choice. Now, I tell my kids this a lot. Baby, I'm looking at you. <laughs> no names. No names. My oldest girl. <laughs> when we make a choice, let's make sure it's the right one. Because there are real consequences in a real world. And we can rage and we can kick and scream and moan and complain, but those consequences are going to come nonetheless. Because we made a bad choice or we made a good choice. But our choices, they carry consequences. There are going to be things that transpire because of the choices we make. And God has given us that ability. And we need to use that correctly. God created man with free moral agency. We decided to use that free moral agency, though, to rebel against God in the Garden of Eden. While keeping free moral agency in the picture, God is using the natural consequences of man's rebellion against God to teach us the horrors of living a life that is in rebellion against God. He is going to use those natural consequences for his purposes. He is going to use those to spank us, as it were, and correct us and let us know that there is a better way. If you don't like those consequences, here are some better choices you can make. As parents, we tell our kids that all the time. Yeah, you can decide to do this, but I'm telling you, it's not going to have the results you're looking for. You'd be better off doing this. Ah, old man doesn't know what he's talking about. I get it. I tell him that. I understand. I won't be smart until you're about 25. Uh, Until then, I'm the dumbest guy around. I get it. But when you're ready, I got the answer for you. (laughs) 
Maybe you're not ready yet. Anyway. But through this whole process, I mean, first of all, God created us because he loves us. Okay? He wants a relationship with us. He didn't create us so that we'd go off and do all these, these screwy things and he'd get to punish us. Okay? That's not his plan. But when we use that moral agency incorrectly, his plan is to use those consequences to bring us back to him. That's what he wants. He wants us living for him. Because that is the absolute best thing that this world can give. Is a life lived for Jesus Christ. The third and final point that I want to make. Right? Yes. Last point. Only a dangerous person can make a difference. Now what do I mean by dangerous? Someone who understands these things. Okay? And we'll talk about them a little bit. The lengths that fallen humanity can attain to. Two, who understands that they are capable of the same atrocities. Three, have chosen a life of surrender to God and obedience to Him. Four, understands just who they are now in Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, the spiritual connotations of being dangerous is what I'm talking about here. Uh, there are, there are these ideas that, and they seem fairly cogent that, you know, to make changes in society or changes in a community, uh, it's not going to be the timid and weak souls that do anything. Uh, it's going to be the, the men and women who are courageous, who are fearless, Brother DeMuth, and have this idea that they can do something. They can affect change. And so... <clears throat> Being dangerous isn't walking around with a gun and shooting people, okay? That's not what we're talking about. Being dangerous is having the capability of walking around and shooting someone and choosing something better. Choosing something better. Using that gun to protect my family. Continuing with the analogy. Using my gun to, to uh, join the armed forces and protect my country. It's the same same concept. I'm just using that in a different sense. As a spiritual man or woman, what do we mean by dangerous? Well, when the enemy comes at us, when we see the enemy moving, we have some choices. We can cower and hide. We can complain to God, why is he attacking me? Why is all of this happening to me? I'm a good Christian. I pay my tithes. I come to church. Why is my life falling apart? We could take that route. Or we could decide that God has given us everything we need and we could, and he's commissioned us to go out and attack the enemy. When the enemy comes at us, we come back at him. That's okay. Now, we don't do that with people. Okay, We don't go after people. We love people. Jesus loves people. Even in their sin and in their degra degradation, they, they are loved by God. They are created in His image, however broken and warped that image may be. 
They are created in the image and in the likeness of God. And I don't, like Brother DeMuth said, I don't care what they look like. I don't care what they smell like. God died for them. God loves them. We can't do anything less than reach out to them and love them ourselves. Let God love them through us. Minister to these who Jesus Christ died for. That's what a dangerous Christian does. Not dangerous to people, but dangerous to the enemy. We need to be dangerous to the enemy, and the enemy needs to recognize that we are dangerous. There's a passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 19. It's an interesting little snippet, and uh, <laughs> in one way it's, it's a little humorous, but in a lot of ways it's pretty sad. Uh, in Acts chapter 19, verse 13 through 16, says this, And certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil priests answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the men in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They weren't dangerous and the enemy knew it. They weren't a threat at all. And the enemy knew it. The enemy recognized Paul as a threat. We see that in his ministry. When Paul said something, they listened. When Jesus said something, they trembled and they listened. Sons of Sceva, I don't know anything about you. That's what I'm talking about. When the enemy comes at us, when the enemy comes at those around us, we have been commissioned, we have been authorized, we have been equipped to do something about it. <clears throat> okay. We read, okay, we talked about that. Okay, the points. Uh, we understand likes fallen humanity is attained to. We talked about that. We understand they are capable of the same atrocities. We talked about that. I hope we all realize that. That is built into every one of us. Without God, that is going to come out at some point in some manner, form, or fashion. Now, what does it mean to choose a life of surrender to God? What does it mean to be obedient to him? <clears throat> what does that mean? How does that play out in the real world? <clears throat> a lot of times, you know, we read stuff or, or we, we hear people talking about stuff and yeah, you need to do this and you need to do that and, and all of this. And at least as a, as a young Christian, sometimes I would think, that sounds really good. Yeah, yeah, we need to do that. And then I'm sitting in bed at night. How do I do that? I have no idea what that even means. So, uh, what does it mean to surrender to God? What does it mean to be obedient to Him? <clears throat> it means dying, basically. We are dying to our old selves. 
We are dying to our passions. We are dying to our desires, our dreams, our hopes for the future. All of these become subordinate to the will of God. And again, Brother DeMuth taught this this morning. When God tells us to do something, when we're obedient to him, we do it. We don't think. We don't come up with a better plan. We just do it the way he said to do it. And everything works out great, even when it doesn't. In Paul's ministry, he did the will of God. I don't know if it always turned out that well for him. I heard one pastor preach about this, and he's, I can imagine Paul sitting in the drink, hanging onto a board, floating down the, the ocean. Sure is great living for Jesus. Sure is awesome knowing the plan of God. <laughs> But it, uh, in the end, of course, it did work out very well for Paul. But it doesn't look like it all the time. He was imprisoned and he was killed because of what he did, because of his submission to God. But understanding that there is more to life than this right here is imperative. And it's so hard for us, especially in the United States, to understand that because we have jobs and we have responsibilities and we have kids we're trying to raise and, and uh, the bills are piling up and the, the water heater is out and, and the brakes need to be replaced. And all of these things are, it's nonstop. It really is. But if we could just take a moment, take a little bit of time at the beginning of our day and realize, spend time with the Lord. I highly recommend it. Spend time with the Lord before you start your day. Uh, it puts things into perspective. Yeah, all these, these things are going on, but you know what? I'm going to blink my eyes a few times and I'm going to be in eternity. I mean, that's, that's how it's going to be. <clears throat> I got... I'm hoping a long time left, but when I was raising my kids, they're almost grown now, and I still remember bringing them home from the hospital, and people told me, spend as much time with them as you can because you won't believe how fast this is. Wow, I didn't see that coming. And they were right. It went so fast. But in the middle of it, it seemed like a drug out forever. When are these dirty diapers going to end? When are they going to be able to keep formula down? (laughs) It wouldn't stop. Now I got a kid in college and this guy's getting ready to drive. It's like, wow. I can't believe that. But our lives are going to be the same way. It seems like a drag sometimes going through life. But, I mean, even I'm 52 years old. I'm not young. I'm not old. I'm not young. 
But I can look back and when I was my teens and 20s, I'm like, it just doesn't seem that long ago. It was 35, 40 years ago. I'm like, our lives are going to go that way. And at the end of our lives, whenever that is, we're going to stand before God. And we're going to give an account for our lives. In that day, I want to give a good account. I want to tell God I did what I was supposed to do. I chose you over everything else, no matter what. I did what you wanted me to do, even though it cost me. And it will cost. But the rewards, what we get in return, are nothing compared to the cost. Nothing. These light afflictions, which are but for a moment, worketh in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight in glory. The Apostle Paul said. <clears throat> now the last point on this is, who are we in God? Who do we become when we, when we choose to serve God, when we submit ourselves to Him? We become something else entirely. We become a new creature. Literally a new species, if you will. Something we weren't before. Someone entirely different. With a different worldview. A different thought process. A different view on life. A different moral code. Everything's different now. And before we were spiritually dead, we are become alive again, spiritually. We now have a relationship with God. And God can speak to us and he can work through us his will. And that's exactly what he wants to do with each and every one of us. He wants to use us. He wants to work through us as imperfect as we are. I get it. Boy, do I get it. But he wants to work through you and me anyway. And the more imperfect the tool, the more glory he gets. Thank God. Because then he can use me too. <clears throat> so, understanding that we are this new creature, endued with spiritual power, because he has given us the earnest of our inheritance, the gift of the Holy Ghost. That power works in us. Exceeding abundantly according to the power that worketh in us. That's the Holy Ghost working through us. He has given us his authority. His name is given to us in water baptism. We have, we have the name of Jesus to call on. That's our name now. Think about that for a moment. He's adopted us into his family. We are sons and daughters of God. And because of that, we are princes and princesses of the king. And we are given special consideration. The resources of heaven stand at your disposal to use in according to his plan. You're not going to call down a new Mercedes, okay? But you can call down power to work in someone's life, salvation, healing, deliverance. That power is at your disposal. And you don't have to be afraid to use it. God wants us to use that power, that authority. We are his body, right? 
the things that he did, I think you spoke on that too, the things that he did here on earth, he wants us to do. And greater things than these shall ye do, because I go to my Father. We are to do greater things than Jesus did. I still can't get my head wrapped quite around that. But I do know definitely that it means I can be doing more than I am now. Not activity, but spiritually. We don't need more activity necessarily, but I need to be more active spiritually. When Jesus came to people, he wasn't afraid to talk to them. He wasn't afraid to touch them and to minister unto them and to love them, pray with them. He knew what would happen when he prayed. That's that's a topic for another time. God will versus God can. <clears throat> but uh, we need to know that God will. He will. We are more than conquerors through God. We're sons and daughters. We're Christ's body on earth. That's who we become. When we're baptized in Jesus' name, we're filled with the Holy Ghost. And we are not called and we are not commissioned to sit back and take our ease and enjoy the presence of God and clap hands and then go home. That's not what we are commissioned to do. Now, I encourage you to do all of that. Okay? Definitely enjoy the presence of God. I do. Clap your hands. Worship. Absolutely. Come to church. Definitely. But we have a work to do. We are called to work. We are called to for a purpose. We have purpose. God has given us purpose in our lives. And that needs to that needs to come through. That needs to be fulfilled in our lives. I'm already over time. Okay. Here we go. Now on to the sermon. What are we to do with all this? The watchman. Back at the very beginning of this whole thing. Uh, we talked about Ezekiel and being a watchman. Watchmen stood guard at the border provinces of a nation. They were set there to warn people that the enemy was coming. If they were asleep or they weren't paying attention, the enemy would come at them and they'd have no warning. That was on the watchman. If the watchman saw it and he gave the warning and people didn't take it seriously, that was on the people. If the watchman saw the enemy, didn't give a warning, that was on the watchman. Okay? So, long story short, God has appointed you as a watchman. Now that is a weighty responsibility. If you remember the verses we read, I don't like reading those verses because they're pretty direct. They're pretty direct. If I fail in my responsibility as a watchman, people's blood is on my hands. I don't like that. Now, what is my responsibility? Am I to stand on the street corner and start yelling at people, you're going to hell unless you accept Jesus? Maybe, but probably not. I won't discount it entirely, but probably not. 
Who are you called to be a watchman of? Your families. Our families we can speak more direct to, right? I appreciate that, except when they do it to me. I, I like it then, too. Uh, but we have a little bit more liberty with our families. We can speak a little bit more boldly to brothers and sisters and stuff like that. Uh, coworkers. Basically, people in our spheres of influence. Family members, coworkers, neighbors, the city. You are called to be a watchman of this city. Now, what does that mean? You are to pray and to fast for the city. Where we are planted, God wants us to grow. If you are planted here, he expects you to grow. That is God's will. Now, that's both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because, man, if it's God's will, then this can happen pretty quick. This can happen pretty easily. If we get in line with what he's wanting to do, that's where the problem comes in. Not always in line with what God wants us to do. And, um, okay. Um, there are people around the world who are, they engage in spiritual battle a lot more than we do. There are people in the world today, there are persecuted countries in our world, people whose, whose Christian population is being severely persecuted. And, they are having to endure things, and they are having to face things that, in the United States, having born and being born and raised here, I can't imagine. There are new converts. Imagine this. There are new converts in uh, Islamic nations that have to have conversations with their families that go like this. Children? There may be men coming through those doors with swords. Try to hide, but if they find you, just close your eyes. It'll hurt for a little bit, but when you open your eyes again, you'll be in the presence of Jesus. Can you imagine coming home from a church service, having to have that conversation with your family? Coming to church the next morning, there may be guards posted there looking for you, looking for Christians. Now, I'm not given to hyperbole. Believe me, I'm not. But I believe with all of my heart that if the church doesn't rise up and do something now, we are going to be facing the exact same thing. We're going to face it. Right now we have, well, certainly certainly compared to most of the world, we have a lot more freedom yet. We need to use that. We need to be thankful for that and defend it. But if and when it, it, it's taken away, we still need to serve God with everything we have. We still need to be submitted to God and do what he tells us to do, no matter what the cost. They're already facing a huge cost. And if something doesn't happen here, we're going to be facing it too. 
And as Christians, I fear that we get used to uh, comfortable uh, seats in an air-conditioned building and, and all of the benefits of serving God with none of the cost. Now, I'm not, I'm not putting, I'm not making light of, of trials that we do go through here in the United States. Please don't misunderstand me. But our trials aren't life-threatening. We have not, as the Bible says, we have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. <clears throat> but the day is coming when we might. And it's going to take a very strong Christian, a very dangerous Christian, to navigate those waters effectually. That is exactly who God is calling us to be. Who this world needs us to be. Numbers 32 and 6 says this, Moses said unto the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war, and shall ye sit here? God forbid. God forbid that there is brethren and sisters around the world who are fighting this battle, who have been fighting this battle, and we're sitting in the rear with the gear. That is not who we are called to be. That is not why God plucked us out of a life of sin. He plucked us out of a life of sin so he could equip us and train us and send us back in and fight this war. And God wants to, he wants to achieve victory through you. Second Samuel chapter 11 and 1, we read the account of King David. And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Zoab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. When he was supposed to be out fighting the good fight, when he was out, he was supposed to be leading his armies in war. He tarried at Jerusalem. And we know what happened next, don't we? He fell into sin. He put himself in a, he shouldn't have been there. He was not supposed to be there. He was supposed to be fighting God's war. Fighting God's fight. Our place is in the front lines. We are not called to be garrison soldiers. We are called to be warriors. We are called to endure hardness as a good soldier. We are called to fight the, the, the battles of God. Those battles aren't physical anymore. They're spiritual. And we are called to give, and we are called to sacrifice, and we are called to count the cost and pay the cost, whatever it is. And please understand, I don't say that lightly either. I've paid some things, you've paid some things. We understand what that means. But I'm saying it anyway. This world needs Christians. Not believers, not people who believe that Jesus existed. Blah, 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 blah. Jesus loves everybody. He does love everybody. But he wants them saved. He wants to move them from where they're at to where he is. And he wants to use you and me to do it. In closing, Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. 
God tells Joshua this, Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Let's all stand. In these end times, God is wanting, God is, I hesitate to say needing, but he has, for whatever reason, bound himself to you and me. He needs us to go out and do what he commands us to do. His will is paramount in these end times. His will is paramount. He has a plan for this city. He has a plan for the state, the entire world. And it will only come to pass if we give ourselves to him and to the plan that he has, he, he has laid out for us. He's waiting on you and me. He's ready. He's ready to go. Let's tell God yes. Whatever you're asking me, I will do. Whatever you're wanting from me, I will give. I promise you, church. I promise you. I know it's cliche. I know people say it from the pulpit all the time. But you cannot outgive God. You can't. God won't let you. He's no man's debtor. Praise God. That's all right where we're at. Let's raise our hands. Let's talk to the Lord for just a moment before we're dismissed.